When we talk about McDonald's combo meals, we talk about savory meat, golden fries, and your favorite drink. Now, the combo meals just got crispy, juicy, and tender with the new crispy chicken sandwich combo. And you have to try it. Get a classic or spicy crispy chicken sandwich with medium fries and a medium soft drink like Sprite for only six bucks. Promotion pricing may be lower than meal pricing. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed. And that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Three. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo Ador uh, Jr., your host. And I have uh, my friend Joe Schmidt. He's a YouTuber. And bro, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I'm really excited for this discussion. Yeah, so um, I'm Joe, and I do both popular and scholarly-level work in philosophy. So on the popular level, that's going to look like my YouTube channel called Majesty of Reason, and it's also going to look like my book, so that has the same name, and as well as my blog, which has the same name. Now, as for scholarly-level work, I do things in metaphysics, Uh, So philosophical research in metaphysics, particularly in persistence. So like what explains why objects continue to exist or persist in existence over time, as well as philosophy of religion. And in particular, models of God like classical theism and other models, as well as traditional kinds of arguments for and against the existence of God. So that's really a background who I am. And I also really like soccer. So that's, uh, that's the last thing. Okay, okay. So I, I saw your video on why you're an agnostic, and um, I, I didn't get to finish it, but but I was about to. But um, can you, uh, I guess, uh, like give us a brief description of why you are an agnostic? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think we should probably first get down some terminology first. So. Um, a theist, of course, believes that, that God exists. A naturalist, or um, I guess we could say atheist, holds that God does not exist. Now, an agnostic is something like in between that. Now, I break up agnostics into three rough categories, and this is kind of my categorization. So one is kind of in-principle agnostic. And so in-principle agnostics say that one cannot know, even in principle, whether or not God exists. A second kind of agnostic is what is called a suspension agnostic. So suspension agnostics just completely withhold any judgment whatsoever as to whether or not God exists. 
Uh, they don't necessarily say that it's impossible to know in principle. They just themselves withhold or suspend judgment. They don't even assign a determinate probability to whether or not God exists. They just completely withhold or suspend their judgment altogether. And then the third kind of agnostic is what I am. It's an epistemic agnostic. And an epistemic agnostic says, well, after looking at the evidence on both sides, at least speaking personally, the probability that God exists as opposed to God not existing is roughly half and half. The, the evidence seems to be counterbalanced on both sides. And so that last kind of category of agnostic is, is what I fit into. So um, that's kind of the, the terminology. Now, uh, why, why do I hold that? Well, I guess I should, uh, should specify that, that God is really at least a kind of traditional, we're, we're conceiving of God as a kind of traditional perfect being who's omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, wholly loving, wholly good, um, metaphysically necessarily existent, the creator and sustainer of the world, and so on. So that's the kind of God that we're talking about, uh, the kind of traditional sort of theistic God. And of course, there are different models that you can unpack there, but that's kind of the core to them. Now, as for why I'm an agnostic, um, yeah, like you said, I, I had a lot of fun putting together that video. And um, it, the main reason is just because, again, I think that there are some, some good reasons to be a theist. And I also think, by my lights, that there are some good reasons not to be a theist. So on the theist side, I think that there are arguments from, for instance, contingency. So I think that... Um, plausibly contingent things like cups and trees and dogs and humans require explanations. And if that's the case, well, then we can consider all contingent things together. And plausibly, that would have an explanation as well. And it can't be one among those contingent things because we're trying to account for why they are in reality in the first place. And so we get to a kind of necessarily existent being that kind of undergirds or supports the existence of contingent reality. So that's kind of, I guess, and, and that necessary being, we could try to unpack different attributes of it. Um, so that, that's, I guess, one consideration favoring theism. Uh, I guess one of the strongest considerations I think favoring atheism is the problem of evolutionary animal suffering. So, you know, we know by means of various biological, biogeographical, paleological evidence that life, and in particular, sentient organisms have existed for tens of millions and probably hundreds of millions of years and that, that these are non-human animals and during that time there's been profound suffering and, and languishing and predation and parasitism and carnivory and so really trying to confront this fact this this widespread substantial profound intense suffering and languishing in the evolutionary process over hundreds of millions of years all across the globe it was very difficult for me to see how that could be expected or or how that could um, come about by means of a perfect and providential governance of a perfect being. Um, and so, and, and not only this, this, what really kind of struck me about this particular argument was that this is kind of the very means or the very mechanism by which God created, right? And he brought about biological diversity and humans in particular, like the engine of creation, as it were, seemed to be death and suffering. And so um, those two kind of those are the two, I think, most plausible considerations favoring both sides. Um, and so that's kind of just an overview of why I myself, uh, you know, lean towards agnosticism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. I guess that in terms of a good God, you, you don't believe in one, but you would have to, I guess, lean on at least something like a deist of some sort that uh, finds things, you know, insignificant, like suffering and stuff like that.
Um, so I guess you, you're, you're kind of gesturing towards different models of God, right? So you've got like a theistic God who's wholly good. You could, for instance, I guess in principle, have a God who is indifferent or like a, maybe a deistic God who kind of, you know, set things going, but then isn't really con too concerned with it as, as creation proceeds and things like that. Um, you could have different versions of theism who, you know, where they say that God is perfectly loving and perfectly good. So you have panentheism, pantheism, classical theism, open theism, uh, neoclassical theism, lots of different models on offer. Um, I myself don't find deistic views and um, other kinds of views on which um, God is indifferent. Uh, I don't find those all too plausible because it, it just seems to me that that wouldn't really be worthy of calling God. Like, it seems to me that God would be a proper object of worship or a fitting object of worship. But it's, it's not clear to me why we would even care about worshiping something that doesn't care about us or is indifferent to us, right? Yeah, so, but, but, but I guess, uh, I'm not but really, I guess like oh, you said, on. yeah, you said that you would lean towards the contingency argument that and a lot of good theist arguments as to why God could exist. Right, but it doesn't have to mean that God is a good or holy God or someone worthy of worship. It could be just like a, a really huge alien that is able to create this reality, but still be in in some sense defined as God. Right, so why why not? Oh yeah, no, that's interesting that you say that, and this kind of gets into. Uh, with respect to contingency arguments, right, you can sort of break them, and various other arguments, you can break them down into different stages, right? So the first stage tries to get you to some kind of explanation or grounding or ultimate reality of of some general feature of reality. So, for instance, contingency or change or causal chains or, you know, things like that, um, composition, things like that. The second stage tries to take what the take what we arrived at at the first stage, that foundation or ultimate reality, something like that, and it tries to unpack various attributes that we might, you know, ascribe to this thing. So uh, you could do conceptual analysis on the thing. So if you think it's metaphysically necessary, maybe you say, well, hey, every material thing is contingent. So this thing must be, because it's necessary, it must be immaterial. And so you, you sort of go through the conceptual analysis. Or you could you could take what explanatory role such a being plays in the first stage. So for instance, it's explaining contingency, and you can try to unpack various divine attributes or maybe non-divine attributes from that. So I think you're kind of getting to this kind of stage two thing, right? Like how do we get from like this kind of ultimate ground or foundation or creator or something like that, right? How do we get from that? Even if we granted the success of stage one, how do we get to how do we get to God from that? How do we get divine attributes like loving and, and he cares about us and things like that? And ultimately, I'm not really convinced by such stage two arguments. I, I don't think that they succeed. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess I, I sort of share your skepticism there um, that, like, you know, like, why couldn't this why couldn't the being that is arrived at at stage one? Why couldn't that be some kind of naturalist friendly being? For instance, maybe it's a foundational necessarily existent quantum field or maybe it's a neutral monist substance or you know things like that so mm -hmm. i guess i kind of share some of your misgivings there really okay okay but okay so um you're an epistemic agnostic right and but i i myself am actually an epistemic agnostic but i'm also a theist so i call myself an agnostic theist it's a thing 
right? It's basically, um, I, I, I'm, I don't claim that I can know for certain that God exists, but I do believe that God exists. So I guess it's not, it's, a, it's an as if argument that I act as if God exists and it intuitionally he is real to me, right? And that's how I would define it. And, and but in in terms of i guess your epistemology you you don't claim to know that god exists but in in, in how about in your beliefs at least that in properly basic beliefs that do you think that like a classical theist god could exist or is it different? ah that that's a good question so yeah so i guess my own confidence or so okay so here here's how i like to divide things right so epistemologists like to distinguish between beliefs and credences. There's a huge scholarly literature about which one is fundamental, about which one might be reducible to another, about, you know, things like that. But um, I lean towards a view on which they are sort of separate. And yeah, but but roughly credences or uh, they're, they're the confidence that you assign to something. It's like your degree of belief. So you might be more or less confident uh, in something. So like 0.5 probability of it's being true, maybe 0.7, maybe you're certain, things like that. Whereas belief seems to be like an on or off, on or off switch, right? You either believe it or you don't. And so I, I tend to think that credences are more fundamental. And so I tend to think that um, I go about thinking about ultimate reality and God and, and other sorts of things. I go about assigning credences like that. So that, that's really what I try to focus on. And I have a different credence, really, for different models of God. So, for instance, I think that the two most plausible models of God are neoclassical theism and panentheism, in my view. And so to them, I'd have, you know, something like, you know, I guess together, I, I don't know whether or not they're true. Maybe I have a 0.5 probability of their being true, and then a 0.5 probability of naturalism being true in relation to them. But if we're considering, for instance, classical theism, um, I would be more confident uh, in the falsehood of classical theism in particular, because I, I, ha I think that there are some strong arguments, at least by my lights, that count against it, that don't count against other models of God. So I'm more confident, not certain, of course, but I'm more confident in the falsehood of that. So that, that's really how my kind of epistemology of, of this works out. Okay, okay. But in terms of epistemology, right, it's either that, uh, basically, how do you know or claim to know things. For example, you, in, in terms of your agnosticism towards God, you claim that to not know whether God exists or not, but basically what is your normal daily life, you know, in your worldview, what epistemology do you use? Or do you like, are the, are you able to, or do you hold like metaphysical beliefs as well, or claim to have knowledge on the ultimate, on ultimate reality? Um, where do you go from there? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. Yeah, so um, as a, you know, a philosophy student, and I think uh, we could probably say philosopher, um, you know, I'm really interested in getting to the fundamental truths about the nature of reality, right? These kind of treacherous truths. And so I do think that it's certainly possible by means of our cognitive faculties to arrive at such truths. But it just in different domains, I think that in some of them we have arrived at them, or we as in me, I guess, I have arrived at them and in other ones I haven't. So for instance, uh, in the domain of 
uh, moral realism say? Like that's kind of about the fundamental nature of reality, whether or not there are moral facts, moral truths, objectively. I am convinced by a variety of different arguments that that is indeed true, that moral realism is true. There are objective moral facts and things like that. They're independent of human minds and beliefs and subjective states and things like that. So um, I, I'm definitely open uh, in a variety of ways to knowledge of the fundamental nature of reality. And in fact, I do have some pretty strong views in, in a variety of these different areas. But in other areas, I think that the evidence is roughly counterbalanced. So that would be with respect to God. Now. To turn to your question about epistemology, right? How do we come to to know things? Um, I just, I you know, I, I just think that we, you know, we use our cognitive faculties, as it were, and you know, we just reason about them. We use universal experience. Uh, we use our intuitions. We use our um, we use testimonial evidence. Uh, we use our you know our rational intuition and our, our reason, and we we use a bunch of these different methods. We collate them together, and you know, we try our best to get at <laughs> the fundamental nature of reality. In the context of philosophy, that would usually be in terms of constructing arguments, right? So uh, you're constructing arguments with premises and a conclusion, then you defend the premises, you give certain reasons for thinking that they're true. Maybe you can appeal to uh, universal experience, maybe you can appeal to induction and other things like that. So that's really how I would go about it. You know, you know just like let's use as many methods of gaining knowledge okay. as we can and from other disciplines as well, like science. Okay. Okay. But in, in terms of the standard you set for what you could say is properly justified, could anything of knowledge that, that is knowledge or anything of no of knowledge be properly justified? What do, you, what do you think? Like, it's not that it's infallible, but it's more of just, it's really something that corresponds to what ultimate reality is. Like for example, science, right? It, you make testable, uh, and pre predictions. And if it, if it, the model you make is, is good, you know, it, it works that it's probably true. Do you make any claim on that or? Yeah, no, so, so that's good. So, um, like you said, I'm, I'm a fallibilist. So, you know, um, you know, there's a distinction in epistemology between fallibilism and infallibilism. Infallibilists say that in order to know something, you have to infallibly know it. Um, there's a sense in which you can't be wrong about it. Fallibilists, on the, on the contrary, which is the vast majority of epistemologists and philosophers, um, including myself, uh, we say that, no, you don't need to be like, you don't need to have this certainty. You don't, it doesn't have to be such that you can't be wrong. You don't have to be infallible. You can still be fallible, but you can still have knowledge on it. And so I, I would accept that kind of fallibilism. And I think that the means by which we come to knowledge is probably going to vary uh, by the domain, right? So in science, for instance, we're going to be using empirical methods and, and experience and a lot of inference to the best explanation, right? So like what best explains the phenomena in, in say biology that we see, what's the best explanation for this? So we use a lot of that kind of reasoning in science. In philosophy, we might use more so kind of like conceptual analysis, construction of arguments, rational intuition, things like that, more a kind of um, armchair kind of stuff, but not, not entirely, right? Uh, philosophy is uh, deeply indebted to mathematics and logic and, and science and draws on their findings heavily. And so I, I, I would say that the methods for coming to knowledge, which is in fact, you know, possible and real, many of us have you know, substantive knowledge of the world. I would say it varies by by the domain or by the discipline. I think, um, but yeah, that that's my main response there. Okay, so if it, I guess in terms of variation, right? So you you at least in terms of why you call yourself an agnostic, 
it and you defined your beliefs, I guess, in terms of credence, right? In terms of confidence, degrees of confidence. So do you also apply credence to not just to God, but also let's say morality, your mor- moral realism or your or, or, or philosophy of science or philosophy of mind? Or do you just like make suspensions of beliefs there? What do you, what, how do you do that? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. So I do, I, I kind of apply this credence um, across the board. I mean, not to like everyday things like, you know, like I'm, I don't walk around and like assess my credence in whether or not I am currently talking to you, right? Like I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. Um, and I don't really, but, but in terms of the more substantive beliefs, you know, like things like whether or not physicalism is true, whether or not non-physicalism with respect to the mind is true, whether or not God exists, whether or not scientific realism is true, whether or not moral realism is true, these things, I do apply this kind of credence approach um, to them. So for instance, I mean, I, I don't know any precise number that I would assign to it, but I have a high credence in moral realism, um, you know, scientific realism, at least in general, I have a high credence towards that. Um, there's some nuances there with respect to the kind of highly theoretical physics and, and epistemic structural realism, but we don't need to get into that. Um, just uh, my, the, to answer your question, I, I do apply this kind of credence approach to other domains. And in, in different domains, you know, I might have a higher credence in, in something and lesser credence in one other, another thing and, and so on. So um, yeah, I do apply it across across the domain. Okay. But in, in terms of that, um if you have like the variations or in, in degrees of credence, right, and the like substantive, substantive uh, beliefs, I guess, how do you, I guess, do you, do you know whether or not you might hold any contra- contradictory beliefs? Like, for example, if you ha- have a high degree of confidence in moral realism, but you have like a really bad or low level of degree of confidence in something, some, something like God or a classical God that actually has uh, dictates an objective good or evil. So wouldn't you say that's a little contradictory, at least in terms of credence, I guess, because it's not like a binary, like uh, yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. And there is certainly the opportunity for having contradictory beliefs when, uh, well, also when you take this credence approach, as well as take the the belief and non-belief approach, right? So when you're talking about credences, for instance, one might, if one is not properly um, attentive to one's uh, degrees of belief, one might take some proposition P and one might think that one has uh, a 0.5 probability in the truth of P but maybe a 0.6 probability in the falsity of P, right? And maybe they, they aren't properly attentive to their beliefs uh, or something like that. Or maybe they just, um, yeah, who knows? But that that is an inconsistency, right? It cannot be the case that uh, there's a 0.5 uh, chance of it's something, you, you know, because the probabilities have to add up to one. And although these are epistemic probabilities, they still have to add up to one. They have to respect probability calculus. That's math, right? So, um there is definitely an opportunity when you take this approach uh, for kinds of contradictory beliefs. And it's the task of, of philosophers and, and good thinkers really to try to weed out those those contradictory beliefs and uncover them when they arise and address them when they arise. So um, there is the possibility there. Um, yeah. Okay, okay. Then I'd like to explore your views on moral realism because you say that you have a high degree of, of I guess, credence and in that but um what basically is your moral code like are you a vegan 
or do you like what are you like <laughs> i i guess you're an agnostic so i can't like put a pin on it yeah yeah so when we talk about morality or ethics right we can sort of divide it up into well at least two different kinds of branches right so there's there's the meta ethical question and the meta ethical question just is or meta ethical questions plural uh, asks okay is moral realism true? Are there objective moral facts? Uh, and like, what is the nature of them? Like, are they sort of platonic abstracta? Are there, for instance, just ungrounded, necessarily true, necessarily existent um, abstract properties, say, of wrongness and rightness um, and goodness and badness, things like that? That would be a kind of what philosophers call moral non-naturalism. Then there is moral naturalism, say, where you think that um, moral properties like goodness and badness and rightness and wrongness are either grounded in or um, or are reducible to or supervene on or are identical to something like that. Uh, natural properties. So things like um, the suffering and languishing or the flourishing and well-being of creatures. You might identify it with um certain neurophysiological states. You know, th there are a bunch of different options open to the moral naturalist. So that's kind of a question of, I guess, your moral ontology and what is the nature of right and wrong and what are these properties, right? So th there's there's that side of it. And there is also another side, which I think what you were kind of getting at, and that's a kind of normative ethics. And in your normative ethics, usually you take for granted something like moral realism, um, you might argue for it elsewhere, but I, you sort of take on board, I should say, moral realism, and then you try to unpack what what does wrongness consist in? Does it consist in, um, you know, or what does rightness consist in? Does it consist in maximizing happiness and maximizing utility? So that would be a kind of utilitarian approach. Does it consist in acting in accordance with virtues? So that would be a kind of uh, virtue-based approach. Does it consist in following certain I guess perhaps inviolable axioms and or axioms, <clears throat> sorry, maxims and principles and rules. So that would be kind of deontological approach, and so on, right? You get all these different approaches like contractualism, contractarianism, and and so that's kind of normative ethics. It takes for granted a lot of the questions in the meta-ethical domain, but then tries to build a kind of theory in the normative domain. And so um, with respect to that, um, because this is outside of my area of research, I don't have to like, I don't have many considered sort of really robust views in normative ethics, but I guess I would lean towards something like maybe a mixture of virtue ethics and deontology. Um, I do think that there are a lot of difficulties with utilitarianism and certain counterexamples and things like that. But so using that approach, I would say that there are certain moral principles on which we act. You know, you have like the golden rule and other things like that. And, and, you know, do good, avoid evil, you know, don't cause needless harm or pain, things like that. And, and so you, you kind of build out your moral framework based on these deontological principles, based on moral and intellectual virtues on which you act. And so you can spell out those virtues, you know, yeah. um, courage, honesty, okay. integrity, and so on. So but yeah, what, that's what are, really... What are the foundations of your moral, not at least even if it's normative, like what is the, what are the actions, I guess, do you use? To determine what is good or what 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 should be or what's wrong or what's evil. Yeah, so th there's a kind of epistemological question here of like, how do I tell? Like, how do I go about deciding that? And then there's the ontological question of like, what explains that or what grounds it? So I guess in the epistemological domain, um, 
I use, you know, that I use arguments, tools in philosophy. So for instance, if we're talking about abortion, I'll, I'll look at different arguments for and against it. And I'll try to form my beliefs on the basis of those arguments, usually undergirded by intuitions. I also think that there are certain self-evident things like, um, in general, I should be honest, you know, things like that. Um, perhaps it's a categorical imperative, you know, there's debate we had there. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I use a variety of different methods for coming to knowledge of these mm -hmm. things. So but doesn't that, that sounds incoherent, though, right? If you're going to jump from one argument to another and then to another, and you're just going to base your beliefs on that, it's, you're bound to make contradictory beliefs unless the foundations are grounded on something like related to the rest of your belief system, right? I, I guess that's if that's the case, right? Like, you can't claim the, okay. Like, yeah, I, I guess I don't really, I don't really see that, right? So I think that um, so long as we're properly attentive to our beliefs and our belief system, we can kind of form this integrative web uh, of beliefs and intuitions and, and things like that. And there need not be any kind of contradictions that arise so long as we are, of course, properly attentive and properly yeah. reasoning and things like that. Okay, well, I guess in terms of your attentiveness, like, for example, in terms of moral realism, you didn't actually answer my question on what the ontology or ontological basis of your moral uh, beliefs are, right? I, I would like to know if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was unpacking. So your question was sort of ambiguous between the epistemic side, yeah. like how do I come to know? I can see both. And then the how about both? Like, what's yeah, that? yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll go on the ontological one now. So um, now we're getting into kind of the meta-ethics. And... Um, Again, this is outside of my area of, of research and, and specialty, so I don't have too many considered and, and you know robust views here. But I, I I'm undecided between moral naturalism and moral non-naturalism. So moral non-naturalism, there are a variety of different versions, but the one that I would favor is something like a moral Platonism. So that you know prop, uh, properties of goodness and badness and rightness or wrongness are just abstract universal properties um, and you know there's kind of irreducible normativity to them and and things like that so that that's kind of the, the story to tell with respect to those the moral naturalist on the contrary says that no these things aren't kind of abstract universal properties they are instead either grounded in or reducible to or identical with certain natural facts like the um, you know suffering of creatures say or the flourishing and languishing of creatures or their well-being or something like that so um, I'm undecided between those two, mainly because I haven't had enough chance to research them. But they both do, I think, provide at least a, a coherent and decent enough uh, ontological grounding of um, moral facts, moral truths, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my answer. Okay, so it's basically uh, pain is bad and pleasure is good, right? That's your the the most basic of your moral axioms. If that's well, I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure about about that. I mean, if we want to talk, if we want to get to the really sort of foundations of my ethical framework, I think then we're probably getting into normative ethics and like what the principles there are. But I, I think what you asked was a sort of ontological question about their grounding in in, in extramental reality, like what what grounds them or explains them. And so I was giving the answer to the sort of grounding or explaining one. Um, which is that I'm agnostic between these two different approaches. Now, as for the most fundamental sort of basic principles, um, 
Uh, well, I, you know, I think I, I'm, I'm with Aquinas when he said that the most basic one is do good and avoid evil. But then, of course, you have to unpack what's good and evil. And now we're getting into the different arguments and principles that you can level, like uh, the golden rule and things like that. You can talk about the intrinsic badness of, of suffering, say, or, you know, but, the intrinsic but yeah, but, flourishing. But the thing is, like, when you, like, for example, reference someone like Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas was a theist, right? Uh, and you use his arguments for what what your moral uh, code is. That it's, I guess, that would bring you to theism, or uh, maybe it it could like give you something of of at least that on in between, I guess, I guess, or in the gray area. If you use the- well, so he wasn't he, here. He's not using theism, right? He's not using an argument for theism. He's not talking about theism. He's just talking about the most fundamental basic principle, which is do good and avoid evil. So that doesn't reference God or anything like that or theism and so on. Right. And so um, I can be in perfect accord, a perfect agreement with him in that regard, in that respect, while disagreeing with certain other things that he claims, just as you can agree with some things that I claim while disagreeing with other things that I claim. So I, I don't think there's any uh, inconsistency there. OK, OK. But I guess, you know, you differentiated um, epistemology earlier with ontology, and I agree with you. There is a difference, right? And that, and to me, like, I left being just an agnostic and called myself an agnostic a theist because, you know, when you make like a positive claim, let's say that I, it's either I believe in God or I don't believe in God, you are responsible or accountable to also hold the implications of that proposition. Would, would you agree, right? And in that, in implica- the, these implications spread out for the rest of your worldview as well. And whether or not you you hold um, coherent or incoherent beliefs, I guess it, it it's determined by when you when you start claiming something. So in terms of claiming, do you ever make like a, a truth claim in an argument or do you, do you just hold like a credence value to it? Um, so, I, well, I think both really, right? So um, so I've made a lot of different uh, truth claims even here, right? I think that moral realism is true. And so we can separate thinking something is true from the confidence with which you make such a proclamation, right? So. Um, I think moral realism is true, and so I just think it's true, simplicit, or full stop, full-blown characterizes reality. Then there's the further question of the confidence with which I, I, you know, I say that or I sign to that that truth. And um, I mean, I can't give you a number here, but it's something quite high. So. Um, yeah, so I think once we make that distinction, we can see that, yeah, I do make a lot of different truth claims and, and a whole host of different domains. And, and, you know, I love exploring some of those truth claims on my videos, as you know. So. Okay, cool. Cool. So in the sense of like when you make, I guess that, like for example, you say that moral real, realism is true, would you accept like the implications of, of, that, pro, of that truth proposition? Like, for example, if morally really realism is true, then what is its nature, right? So if its nature is something like this and that, and that it has to be, I get it's, it's spread out, you know, and that's, that's why I, I interview my guests on their worldview on whether it's, it's coherent, correspondent to reality or what if their foundations are logical, whatnot. But in terms of that, how, how would you view it in the sense that you make, make a claim that it is true rather than just the confidence parts. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and I I totally agree with you. Like the the true claims that we make, especially with respect to some of these substantive propositions like um, moral realism, they're going to have more widespread effects on the elsewhere downstream in our worldview, right? So um, that is certainly certainly true here, I think. And so absolutely, I I would uh, I, you know, there's a question as to whether or not some given proposition Q is in fact an entailment of or implication of moral realism. Um, you know, there's there's a debate or question to be had there. But um, if I if I, you know, come to reasonable satisfaction, uh, think to think that Q is in fact a consequence of that, then by the fact that I'm committed to P and committed to P's entailing Q, well, then I am committed to Q, right? So um, I would totally agree with you there. Okay, so I guess um, in terms of that, right, in that sense, how would you define your normative ethics i guess because normat if it's if it's that then you're falling into something like uh, permissibility here or guess moral nihilism oh, i don't know <laughs> i guess that would be the case if you're going to hold that view yeah yeah so um like, as I said, I'm a moral realist. And then with respect to moral normativity, like normative ethics, um, I, I'm, I don't know, I would probably accept something like a, a mixture of deontology and virtue ethics. But uh, um, I don't have like a worked out framework right now because that's okay. not my area of okay. research. So. Okay. Anyways, yeah. like I, I'd like to move on. But um, I would also like to ask you in terms of when you, when you mentioned person-based I guess worldviews in your in your video. How how does that actually uh, work? Like, um, can you can you talk more about that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's such a good question. So, um, when we think about justification, right? Each of us comes to the table, as it were, comes to the philosophical table with a whole host of of baggage, right? Baggage in terms of our prior beliefs that we have, the baggage in terms of the testimony we've gotten from our parents and our peers and things like that, baggage in terms of the books that we've read and the debates that we've watched and the, the podcasts that we've listened to and um, the YouTube channels that we've subscribed to and, and all these sorts of things. And moreover, the discussions you've had with friends and discussions you've had with teachers and your educational material and, and sorts of things, right? And you have this whole concoction of, of factors that, that shape influence um, modulate your uh, what you find plausible what you find implausible your intuitions and things like that um, and, and, and so because this concoction of factors this baggage is going to be different from you know person to person each person's like uh, the success of an argument say and hence the justification one attaches to its conclusion is going to vary person by person because they have they're coming to it with different baggage right and so in that sense, uh, whether or not an argument succeeds or fails or justifies something is going to be heavily dependent upon um, what one comes to the table with, equipped with in the first place, right? So that's really what I mean by um, the sort of person-based nature of justification. It's going to be highly attuned to what the individual person has been exposed to thus far, their, their, their credences, their prior beliefs, and, and their education, and so on. So, um, yeah, so it, it's sort of like, we all occupy an, a unique position on the epistemic landscape, as it were, um, with, with all this different baggage, with our current beliefs, and with what we're interested in. So that's really what I mean by uh, the person-based nature of it. Okay, okay. So basically that no one can escape 
person-based worldviews, like whether or not whatever uh, metaphysical claims you have, it was still having its limitations be, being from a perspective of human being that is a result of internal and external stimuli, right, in their lives. It, that, that, that's sort of the thing that you're claiming, I guess? It's similar. It's similar to that. It's not exactly that, but but it's it's similar. So like, we're mainly talking about justification for their worldview and the justification, right? So like their worldview and its truth or falsity, right? That's going to be completely independent of our beliefs and, and our desires and, and our, our baggage, as it were. So the worldview, you know, uh, you know, I, it's either true or false, so true or false independently of our beliefs and so on. But the justification that we have and, and whether or not an argument succeeds relative to us and, and relative to our background knowledge and things like that, that is what's going to vary person by person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So I guess then that uh, even a, uh, there could be a collective worldview, with, but with... I guess different person-based baggages, right? That that's what you mean, also. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, there there might be a sort of, uh, I guess, a broadly Christian worldview, but each individual is is going to have various aspects of of reality that they're grasping better than others, and and they're going to have more justification in certain tenets than others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I'd like to ask you on your 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 position on the persistence i guess of reality right like Hume made a point on that and in in his uh in his own skepticism but uh how would you uh, i guess what 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 are your points on the persistence of reality you mentioned yeah that, yeah that's a good question so um there are different ways we could sort of carve up this debate one of them is like what is persistence? So like, what is it for things to continue to be over time? Right. And so there are like different views there. I myself lean towards a kind of endurantism, which just says that um, objects persist through time. And when they do so, they themselves are wholly present at each time at which they exist. So what that that like you and I. Yeah, similar are, to like, what Dr. Mullins like claims, right? And yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. This is the position that Ryan Mullins holds, and, and a, a whole host of philosophers hold. Um, not not all of them. It's probably something like close to to roughly half and half that are endurantists and perdurantists, which is the other view. But it might be slightly higher for perdurantists. Anyway, that we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so so the uh, the endurantists right says that we persist by being wholly present at each time. It's the entire object. It's a three dimensional object that is present completely at each individual time at which it exists. Now, by contrast, um, perdurantism says that no, that that is false. They say that rather objects the whole object is extended through time kind of like a a, like a space-time worm as it were so we are four-dimensional objects we aren't three-dimensional objects that persist through time we are four-dimensional objects that have um temporal parts at different times so there's like a temporal part of me that's talking to you right now but it's not me it's not me as such it's a temporal part of me and i uh, under certain views i am the sort of four-dimensional extended worm there and so i uh, i lean towards a kind of endurantism i think that it makes a lot more sense of of reasoning and, and our experience and uh, and so on um and of course, you know, I think there's room for rational disagreement here. Um, so I guess that that's one sort of question. And then another question is what explains why reality persists. And um, I think that there are a lot of different proposals there. Um, you could uh, you could just say that 
uh, for instance, uh, there are these sort of trans-temporal, so across time, these sort of trans-temporal, either causal or explanatory relations that account for it. You could you could say that uh, it's just metaphysically necessary that things persist when when there aren't any destructive factors, and so on. And and uh, you know, I'm developing a bunch of different um, other accounts of this in uh, some papers of mine. So, um, but yeah, hopefully that goes by way to answer your question. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, in terms of endurance test, like I, um, I'm really curious as to how that affects your, I guess, your view on life, right? So it it means that let's say that I I'm I'm the same person from when I was born and stuff like that. But so, but and also, what would be the implications if you're not an endurance test? I guess it's it's really interesting. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I think that the implication is probably um, <laughs> explosion, really. I'm explosion because I think that by explosion, um, philosophers mean that if a view is impossible, then anything follows from it. Because uh, in in logic, when you have a conditional or implication, um, when the antecedent, when the if part is is impossible to satisfy, it's necessarily false. Then you can you can derive anything from it. Uh, <laughs> anything. So, I mean, I, to be cheeky, I think that the the, the implication of, of perdurantism is explosion. I think you can derive anything from it. But, um, you know, I guess um, if we were to think counter possibly, um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting view. I mean, like you're not the same. You are not the same thing that was talking to me earlier in this discussion, like 40 minutes ago. Right. You um, it's like a, it's a numerically distinct temporal part of some distinct four-dimensional object. So it's like, in what sense am I still talking to you? Like, I don't know, it's it's really it's really odd. And of course there are responses to this in the literature and so on, but but I do find it I do find it quite odd. Um, but that's just that's I'm just that's my confession. <laughs> mm, okay, okay. But I, I guess that um, in terms of time and reality, right? It, it I guess it it also uh could in it like come back to the topic of God being the one that maintains everything and, you know, like, <laughs> but um, entangles uh, us in this uh, four-dimensional reality. But um, ha- ha- what would be your take on the models of God? It, 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 I guess we sort of like uh, passed through it earlier, but um, could you like give a longer description, I guess, or more specific ones? Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> this will probably have to be uh, our. I, I'm really enjoying this, but this will probably have to be our. our unfortunately, our last question t- together. I think um, b- before we before we start to start to end this. But um, just just quickly, um, the 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 two main models that I like to research are classical theism and neoclassical theism. So classical theism views God as, uh, of course, an ultimate necessary reality upon which all else depends. Um, Now, you know, neoclassical theism agrees with that, but classical theism adds certain core and distinctive claims. So they add four of them. One of them is divine simplicity that says that whatever is within God is God. So whatever is inside of God, as it were, intrinsic to God is numerically identical, excuse me, it's numerically identical with God. Um, God doesn't have any parts and, and things like that. The second claim that they add is divine timelessness. So that says that uh, God exists outside of time. Uh, he doesn't undergo succession in his life. There's no before and after. There's no temporal location or duration and so on. The third one is impassibility. 
And then the fourth one is immutability. So impassibility says that God cannot suffer. He only experiences a kind of pure and undisturbable and unchangeable bliss or blessedness or happiness. And moreover, God cannot be causally affected by anything at extra to the divine nature. And then immutability, finally, or unchangeability, says that God has no potency. He has no potential to change. He is utterly unchangeable. Uh, so he doesn't go from anything to anything, really. Um, so... The, those are the four main core tenets of classical theism. And then neoclassical theism just uh, accepts basically perfect being theology. They accept metaphysically necessary. They accept uh, that thing, everything else pretty much depends on God uh, for its reality at every moment at which it exists. But neoclassical theism denies those four tenets of classical theism, uh, one or more of them, but usually all of them. And so they say that God is in time. They say that uh, there there might be something within God that is distinct from God. So maybe he has distinct properties, say, um, and, and things like that. So um, yeah, that's that's basically the, the overview. And, and I tend to find the, the latter more plausible, though that's not to say that, you know, I'm like certain about that. But um, I, I do have, I do have a variety of different arguments um, that I've developed in, in papers under review and, and and forthcoming. Yeah. Uh, on I'd like things, to congratulate so. you, by the way, on uh, your, yep, yep. your paper you co-authored with Dr. Mullins. That that was really awesome. Right? Yes, thank you so much. We just heard back about that today, and it was accepted at Religious Studies. So I'm very excited about yeah. that. So thank you so much for your congratulations. And, yeah. I do and appreciate. Thank it. you for your time, Joe. It's been an awesome conversation, man. I hope you uh, find time to come back to the show. <laughs> yeah, that was super fun, my dude. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. Okay. Bye, bro. See ya. Okay. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with carrier. Products sold separately.